All right, now we are continuing into our, the second sermon in our series on the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, we started this series last week by introducing the concept, uh, or the, the, the moment when the Israel became a monarchy. Because originally, they didn't really have a central government. They were just meant to be following the leading of God and trusting God to take care of them as they each fulfilled their responsibility in obeying the law. Uh, each, each Israelite was meant to know the law and to be able to follow God's design. And last week we talked about the fact that they were motivated to set a king over them so that they wouldn't have to bear that responsibility, so that the king could rule Israel on God's behalf for them. And the reason why we are studying the, the kings is because we as believers are also called to rule on God's behalf. That's what he made us for, was that we could take whatever influence or responsibility he's given us and use it to order the world according to God's design. And so every one of us has that mission from God. It has, we all have that uh, responsibility that, we are, um, that we're meant to fulfill. And so we're going to look at the kings and their stories and to see what happens in their reigns and what lessons we can draw from the mistakes they make and the things they do right so that we can learn the best way to reign on God's behalf. We're going to start today looking at the first king, King Saul. And King Saul gets a bad rap, but he actually has a very interesting story if you put the details together. The Bible tells stories in a different order than we normally do, and so sometimes you don't realize the kind of story that's being told. But Saul's reign, I call him the rebel king, because Saul, his story is a lot like the, uh, Braveheart or the outlaw king or any of those uh, movies that you see where, where an oppressed people uh, are led by a charismatic leader into rebellion and to independence. That's actually the situation that Saul was called into. You can see this when you pick up on a few of the details of the story in which he becomes king. First, that the Israelites, they... They call, they call him to become a king. They say they want a king, but when they anoint him, they don't call him king. They call him leader. They kind of tone it down because it turns out the Philistines are occupying Israel. There's a garrison of Philistines in Saul's hometown. So when they actually do the public thing of making him king, they kind of tone it down and they call him a leader. And then the first thing Saul does when he becomes king is he goes home and gets back to farming. Because this is kind of a secret. They don't want the Philistines to find out that they have appointed a king to lead them in battle. Now Saul gets led off into a war on the other side, on the east of Israel, away from the Philistines. And he fights a battle and he wins. And that's why the Israelites were so excited in the story we talked about last week when Samuel tells them this wasn't actually a good idea. So he fights that battle and things seem to go well. But when he comes back home, he still has the Philistines to deal with. And it's a pretty big deal because the Philistines are occupying Israel and they actually have made it illegal for the Israelites to have their own blacksmiths. The Bible tells us that they, are, they have to go to Philistine cities to have their farm implements sharpened because they're not allowed to have uh, blacksmiths. Otherwise, they might make weapons. And actually tells us that the only people with weapons in Israel at this time are Saul and his son Jonathan. So I guess that's what makes you a king in Israel at this time, is if you're the one guy with a sword. 
And so there comes a time when Saul is going to launch this rebellion. And he does it by having his son attack the garrison in their hometown. And this is actually a common thing in rebellions where you, you launch an attack and it provokes your oppressors. And then everybody has to commit because the Philistines are coming to attack and they're not going to differentiate between rebels and innocents. So I guess we're all committed to this war. So I'm going to read you from Saul, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 where this happens. And we're going to see Saul get into this, this life and death struggle with the Philistines. But the strange thing about this story is that Saul is going to make one seemingly tiny mistake that is going to derail the entire thing. And we're going to have to ask the question, the question we're going to wrestle with in this is, what did Saul do wrong? What, what did he do wrong in this whole process? So I want you to look for that as I'm reading you the story. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew a trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul has launched the war by attacking the garrison in his hometown, and now the Israelites are committed. They have to fight. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. Now, a side note here, for us, chariots aren't that significant. But for the Israelites, that's a really big deal. Chariots are like the, the, the height of military technology at the time. And the Philistines have them because they live on the plains. But the Israelites are cooped up in the mountains. And so they don't have chariots. So they are at a severe disadvantage. They don't have swords. They don't have chariots. This is a guerrilla war against a much more powerful opponent. The men of Israel saw they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed day, time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah and Benjamin Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. All right, so 
Saul is a king. He is not a priest. So Saul is not supposed to offer sacrifices. Samuel told him, go to the battlefield, wait seven days, and I, as a prophet, will come and do the sacrifice for you. Saul waits the seven days, but his troops are really intimidated by fighting the Philistines, and they're starting to sneak away. They're starting to desert. And Saul is worried that he's going to lose his army, and he doesn't want to go into battle without God's approval, so he does the sacrifice himself. And Samuel tells him that you did the wrong thing, you were foolish, and because of this, your dynasty will end with you. Now that seems like a really severe consequence. And it also seems like what Saul did was of an innocent mistake. In fact, several of the commentaries that I read said that it kind of implies that Samuel set Saul up to fail, and it wasn't really Saul's fault. Saul did the rational thing. He did the reasonable thing thing by doing the sacrifice. So the question that we want to engage with here is, what did Saul do that was so wrong? Why did God bring these severe consequences on Saul over the fact that he made this one small sacrifice? And what we're going to find as we look more closely at this is that his mistake cuts to the very core of what it means for him to rule on God's behalf and for us. So this small mistake actually reveals a much bigger problem. But in order to understand why it's a mistake, we first have to understand what is Saul's job as the king. So we go to the job description for the kings of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. It says he's supposed to make a book of the law, and the law is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. So the king is meant to know the law and to enforce the law. And when we think about that, we often think he's supposed to keep the peace like our governments do. But it's important to understand that the law of Moses, it's actually the word is the teaching of Moses, and it wasn't just a set of rules. It was actually a vision. It was a mission God was sending them on a mission, and these were the instructions for how to fulfill that mission. So in those terms, what we would say is that Saul's job was to lead Israel in their mission. The question is, what is that mission? Well, if we look to Exodus, when God gives them the law, it says, God says to them, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole world is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. To be a kingdom of priests means that they are God's representatives to the world. And they are supposed to show the world what God's design looks like. People are supposed to be able to look at Israel and see how God wants the world to work. They're supposed to see human beings ruling properly, fulfilling God's ultimate design. So Saul's job was to lead Israel in their mission and that mission was to demonstrate God's design to the world. Now, the law of Moses gives Israel instructions for what it is supposed to look like when they go to war. And so if Saul is studying God's law, and it's time for him to go to war, he probably did, he should have read this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says, 
When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and an army larger than yours, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. When you are about to engage in battle, the priest is to come forward and address the army. He is to say to them, listen, Israel, today you are about to engage in battle with your enemies. Do not be cowardly. Do not be afraid, alarmed, or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers are to address the army. Has any man built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man dedicate it. Has any man planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy its fruit? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man enjoy its fruit. Has any man become engaged to a woman and not married her? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man marry her. The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who's afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home so his brothers won't, return, won't lose heart as he did. When the officers have finished addressing the army, they will appoint military commanders to lead it. Now that has to be the weirdest draft in the history of the world. Usually when nations are about to go to war, what they do is they, they emphasize people's anxiety and they emphasize the needs of the nation. They say, hey, everything is at stake. Our way of life is at stake. Our freedom is at stake. And so every person needs to come out. I don't care if you're afraid. I don't care what's going on in your life. We need every able-bodied person to fight. And they really push getting everybody out there. And we, uh, you know, even to this day, you get the death penalty for desertion in wartime. It's really important that we have every soldier. And yet the Israelites are supposed to basically, anybody with an excuse, just go home. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't get so excited. You have a field to take care of. Go home, take care of it. We'll be fine. It's a really strange attitude. Why did God tell them to take this attitude? Well, first of all, I'll tell you that this is one of those places where you can see proof that the law of Moses is not some eternal law for how every society should work and keep order. It is a mission because Israel was supposed to do something specific. And this way of fighting battles only works under specific circumstances. It only works if God is on your side. It only works if God has said that he will win the battle for you. And God did say that to Israel. And Israel, their their mission is to show the world that God's design works and that God will make sure that that design works. And so they are not supposed to fight battles the way other kingdoms do. They're not supposed to be afraid and they're not supposed to think that they will win the battle only if they have the most troops and the best technology. In fact, the king is specifically told not to stockpile horses for his military because Israel is supposed to demonstrate that if you focus on what God has you to do, if you focus on God's design, God will take care of everything else. Because it's our fear that drives us to sin. It's our fear that drives us to do the wrong thing, to be selfish, to lash out at other people. And so the way Israelites are meant to approach the world, you'll see this several times in the Psalms. In Psalm 33, it says, A king is not saved by a large army, a warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him. 
those who depend on his faithful love, to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. So in Israel's mission, faithfulness matters more than winning. It is more important for them to do what God tells them to do, to be faithful to his design, than to be able to win the battle, than to have the military resources to win the battle. This is a key part of what they do. And it's, it's, you see it in many parts of the law of Moses. We've talked about this a lot, about the Sabbath, that Sabbath was not just one day off a week that you take where nobody works, but also one year out of every seven, and then an extra year out of every 50 where you don't farm. The entire economy shuts down for a year. That only works if God shows up. And Israel, as far as we can tell, never faithfully did that because they didn't trust God. But fulfilling their mission means that faithfulness to God matters more than winning. And this is where Saul made his mistake. Because look at his reasoning for why he did the sacrifice himself. Samuel asked, what have you done? And Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Now, he, he t- phrases it to kind of sound pious. Like, I, I knew I needed to seek God's favor. But the reason he's doing it is because he doesn't want his troops to desert. So he wants to encourage his troops to stay because he's done the sacrifices and God's on their side. So he is focused on military thinking. He is focused on trying to have as many troops as possible going into battle because he can only think in terms of of military might, having enough troops. And by rushing the sacrifice for military reasons, Saul undermined his real mission. See, here's the thing. At this point, Saul has, has undermined the entire battle because think about what would happen if God gave him the victory in any way. What story would people tell if Saul had gone out and won the battle with that, with that army? What would they have said? They would have said, well, it's a good thing he did the sacrifice when he did so that enough troops stayed so that they could win the battle. Right? When Saul's actions are focused around making sure there are enough troops to win the battle, then that means that people will credit the victory to the number of troops that he had. And now he cannot faithfully represent God's design to the world because God's design to the world is about trusting in God rather than in power. And because of the decisions that Saul made, he has disqualified himself in this situation from representing God and his design. It won't work anymore. Saul cannot be the one to win the battle. And this is something we have to keep in mind in the decisions we make, that when we put our faith in the wrong things, we make it impossible for God to fulfill his mission through us. Now, we don't make it impossible for God to fulfill his mission. Whether or not God succeeds is a settled thing. God wins. I mean, this book has the ending in it. We know how the whole thing ends. The question is whether you and I are going to be a part of it. Based on what Saul has done, instead of working through Saul... God had to work around him to accomplish his will. Now, God did this on two levels. 
We saw that God's going to do that with the whole monarchy, and we'll get to that in a second. But actually, in this battle, God has to work around Saul as well because, Saul, because of the decision Saul has made. So what ends up happening in chapter 14 is that while Saul's army, while he's doing all this stuff with the sacrifices and he's, he's consulting with priests and all that, uh, his son, Jonathan, gets an idea in his head. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan's got the right idea. It doesn't matter how many troops you have. So he and his armor bearer, they go off and they start a battle. They, they go and attack the garrison and they provoke this battle. And because of God's intervention, the Philistines get really confused and terrified and are fighting each other in all the confusion. So Saul notices the confusion and he calls up his army. But when his army gets there, the battle is effectively already won. It says, Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. See, the whole story is meant to end that way. The Lord saved Israel that day. And if God had given Saul the victory after Saul took, did, took the sacrifice on himself, the story would have been, wow, I'm glad Saul was a quick thinker and did that sacrifice just in time so that Saul could save Israel that day. So God wins the battle, but he wins it in a way that accomplishes his purpose. And the only way to do that is to work around Saul and through Jonathan. Samuel points out to Saul, because of this problem, because of this behavior in you, because of this thing about your character, you are not going to last as a king of Israel. And your family will not last because that would be an endorsement of Saul's style of kingship. So Saul sa Samuel says to him, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord, gave your, the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. The reason God comes down so hard on this sin, on this uh, mistake that Saul made is because it sets the tone for the kingship and it is exactly the wrong tone. It seems like a little thing when there are bigger battle issues at stake, but the whole point is that those bigger battle issues are not more important. God takes care of the bigger battle issues. Our responsibility is in those little decisions of faithfulness, in those little decisions of whether we are going to represent God or not. And that's why Saul cannot be the founder of the dynasty of Israel. Because he, he was wrong on the most important point of ruling on God's behalf. So, next week we will dig into David and what makes him different. David did some things well. He also did some things really poorly. And we're going to learn from his example. But... Now, what I want us to do is I want us to move over into the New Testament, and I want us to ask the question, how, does, how are, is our situation similar to Saul's? 
Because we are not in the Old Testament. We are not under the law of Moses. We are not kings and queens of Israel. We are believers in Jesus Christ. We are Christians following him, and we are part of the kingdom of heaven. So what do we find when we take this question to the New Testament? Well, the first thing we find is that in the kingdom of heaven, faithfulness matters more than winning. We find the exact same principle carrying over, which is probably why the book of 1 Peter says that we also are a kingdom of priests, just like Israel. But where do I see this? You see it all through the New Testament, but let's start with Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. This is what he is talking about. He is saying that when the world looks at you, they judge God based on what they see. Notice he doesn't tell us to be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. He says you can't be hidden. So whenever people look at you, they're going to judge God based on you. So it matters what you do. So then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elaborates on what it looks like for us to be salt of the earth, light of the world, to carry the responsibility for representing God in the world. And what it means is that faithfulness matters more than winning. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who are losing the battle that, our, that people in our world care about. Because they're going to win, because God has won the ultimate battle. But if we are faithful to his design, we participate in his victory. Later on, he tells you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, leave him, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks from you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. All of these instructions that Jesus gives us that have passed into proverb for us, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, those are all ways of, of describing our that emphasis on faithfulness over winning. Don't worry about defeating your enemies. Don't worry about coming out on top. Don't worry about having the most. Worry about being faithful to God's design so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know what it means to be children of your Father in heaven? It means that there's a family resemblance. It means that you look like him, you act like him. When people see you, they see him. I recently, uh, well, when I first got here five years ago, I went to a wedding at a church down in Hillsborough, and um, all these people that I didn't know were giving me funny looks. And it turns out that they had all known my dad as a kid, and I looked just like him. So they figured out the relation just by looking at me. That's what it's supposed to be like, that people look at us and they see the family resemblance to God. And that means that for God's people, defeat is not when you lose the battle, but it's when we fail to uphold God's design. That's the only way we can really lose. We don't lose by being persecuted. We don't lose by losing the lawsuit. We don't lose by having to go the extra mile. We lose when we fail to uphold God's design. 
If you remember last week, we read a passage where Paul tells the church in Corinth that they shouldn't be suing each other because they should be able to resolve their differences because the gospel is supposed to reconcile us to each other. So they shouldn't have to go to the pagan judges to solve their problems. And he says, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? It's actually better to be wronged, it's better to be cheated, to lose, than to behave in an unchristian, ungodly way. Peter says something similar. He says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, uh, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Notice, he says, judgment begins with us. And the question that will be asked will not be, did you win or lose? But it will be, were you faithful? It won't be, were you able to avoid suffering? The question will be, why were you suffering? And if you suffer because you were faithful to God, that is glorious. That is, that is to your credit. That is something to rejoice in. But if you're suffering because you were ungodly, if you're suffering as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, there's no credit in that. That's a failure. And unfortunately, a lot of times, and, and these are the stories that get the most press, is when Christians are suffering for the wrong reasons. When they're suffering for being ungodly, or when they're getting attacked, or when they're, they're um, being opposed because they're being ungodly. That is a failure. A success for us is to be faithful to God's design, to be faithful to his character, to love others when we disagree with them, when we oppose them, when, we, when they are doing things that make us fearful, to love them, to speak the truth to them, and to trust in God. And I know that that is the hardest thing I think you could possibly ask a person to do, to, to take genuine risks in order to trust God. But we can do that because we have a promise. We can be faithful to God because we know that God is faithful to his people. This was the difference between Jonathan and Saul. Remember what Jonathan said. He said, perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan trusted that God can win a battle with any number of people. And if he's decided he's going to win, nothing will stop it. Notice he doesn't say, God will win all of my battles for me. Sometimes that's what Christians say, that any battle I provoke, God's going to bail me out of. That's not what Jonathan believes. Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will help us. If this is the Lord's battle, he will help us. But he has absolute trust that God will show up and fulfill his own, God's own designs. Jonathan did that without much, just with the, the promises of the, of the law of Moses. Imagine what we can do with the promises of the gospel, with the promises of the New Testament. Here's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How he not also with him grant us 
everything. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our promise. That is the promise that we bank on when we step out into the world and we are faithful to God in spite of the risks, in spite of the dangers, in spite of the the fact that we might lose something that we want or we might experience discomfort or genuine suffering. We do it because we hold on to that promise that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his promise. There is no power that can defeat God. There is no power that can defeat his plan, including you and me. And so the choice that we have to make is, are we going to be a part of that or not? And being a part of God's plan means committing to doing what is right and what is godly, in the face of risk, in the face of discomfort, in the face of persecution. Not acting out of fear, not compromising and cutting corners in God's design. And not only focusing on the big things. If Saul's sacrifice matters, then the way you behave in traffic matters. The way we interact with people who cut in line at the grocery store matters, the way we treat our coworkers, the way we pursue that raise, the way we interact online, the way we talk about the people who vote differently than us, all of these things are part of representing God to the world. They are an essential part of what it means for us to follow Jesus, and it is hard to daily commit to fulfilling his design, but that is the mission we are called to do, and we are called to do it in faith, with faith in the promises of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think, hopefully as I've been preaching, God has put some questions on your heart or some situations on your heart. Maybe you have not committed to being part of the kingdom of God. Today is the day for you to do that. I encourage you to contact the church if you want to give your life to Christ or get in touch with a Christian that you know and trust. Give your life to Jesus today. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus and you realize that you've been cutting corners. You have been flinching away from doing the right thing out of fear. You've been acting like Saul. Thankfully, God's patience with us is never ending. And he will always forgive us and work in us to bring us closer to his design. And so today is the best day for you to recommit your life to Jesus. Maybe you're looking for a way to get more connected with a body of believers who are seeking to do the same thing because we are not called to do this alone. That's who Turner Christian Church is striving to be. So I invite you to get more connected with us, whether you're interested in pursuing membership or joining one of our small groups or serving in one of our teams. But as we move into our closing song, I encourage you to consider what decision God has put before you and to take that decision. Dear Father, we are so grateful that we know you are going to win. 
We are grateful that you have promised that we can be a part of that victory. We pray that you would show us what it means to be faithful to you. We pray that we would be transformed